Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Adrian Sharp. Adrian is the author of White Swan, Black Swan, a Barnes & Noble Discover selection. The Sleeping, named one of Booklist's 10 Best First Novels of 2005. And True Memoirs of Little Kay, a finalist for the California Book Award and translated into six languages. Her new novel, The Magnificent Esme Wells, is forthcoming from HarperCollins in April 2018. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. It's uh, a rare treat to be able to interview an author whose great work of fiction I've just finished. It's a, um, it's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first question I have for you is how did you come to write the story? This story has been a family story for a long time. The story of my mom's life and her abandonment by her parents, when they went out to Los Angeles, when the racetracks were built in the late 30s, Santa Anita, Hollywood Park, Del Mar. I think they always fancied themselves big adventurers who wanted to have a very different life from the shopkeeping life they left behind in Jewish Baltimore. They were both very gorgeous, and I think they thought their beauty and their sense of adventure would buy them a big life out in Los Angeles. My mom was left behind, uh, at first just dropped off in an orphanage until her aunts and uncles discovered that one of the sisters had disappeared, and they raised her themselves. My grandparents had a second child, a young boy, who lived with them out in L.A., and his life is the life I gave to my main character, Esme, along with many of my mom's characteristics rather than my uncle's. So I had this very young, beautiful girl, very bright, very driven, who lived a chaotic life where she never went to school and had to live by her wits and energy, much as my uncle had to out here in L.A. until he finally escaped his parents by joining the Army at a young age. So this was a family story that I sort of recast, placing my mom in my uncle's place and imagining what her life might have been like had she been the one they brought out to L.A. Well, I, I promise not to have to say spoiler alert, so I hopefully none of my questions will ruin the um, the great wonderfulness, if I may, of reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, Esme, do you think your main character, um, do you think she was a victim of circumstance, a sort of caught between two generations, and, and you deal with pre-World War II Hollywood and post-war Las Vegas? I wonder if you could speak about that a bit. I think she was someone who was an opportunist and out of desperate need. And so she saw what her talents could buy her in both places. Had they remained in Los Angeles, I'm pretty sure she would have tried to get into the movies and work on the MGM lot as her mother did. But given that that life was abruptly truncated and moved to Las Vegas, Well, there wasn't much for a woman to do in the Vegas of that time besides be a waitress, sell cigarettes, or work on the stage. And at that time, women often gained power by aligning themselves with men who had it. And 
she was a little young to even understand that she was being preyed on or groomed by these men in Vegas who would eventually use her for their own means, but she used them to to make a place for herself. And you really do um, a great job of setting the scene and, and giving um, historical context to how Las Vegas sort of evolved. And there is Jewishly themed material in the book. I think it's safe to say you've um, gotten recognition from the Jewish Book Council. Deserve it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Jewish edges of the story and sort of the promise that Las Vegas may have held? Well, I was um, very interested in Neil Gabler's book, An Empire of Their Own, which explored how the Jews built Hollywood and moved from uh, working scrap metal and rags uh, to buy these little Nickelodeon houses as vaudeville started to fade and movies started to rise. And I hadn't realized until I'd begun my research how much Las Vegas was built by Jewish men, mobsters, and racketeers because of The Godfather, a casino, uh, the movies that I'd seen, I assumed that Las Vegas was built by Italian mobsters, but that really wasn't so. And uh, Jewish mobsters like Mayor Lansky and Mickey Cohen owned early shares in what were the Glitter Gulch, the downtown Vegas casinos that sprang up when all the work was done on Boulder Dam and the miners were there and there was a sudden... Um, I guess, population of men who'd want to gamble and have a red-light district and um, very sad little houses of prostitution sprang up with women sitting on their chairs in front of these little cinder block rooms. And the Los, uh, Los Angeles nightclub scene was starting to move into Vegas, and originally one of those nightclub owners who was not Jewish had the idea to build the Flamingo, and Ben Siegel sort of stole that idea and threatened that idea out of him and took over the land himself. And then other Jewish mobsters from all over the U.S. started to move into Vegas, men like Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway, Davey Berman, and Mo Dalitz. And they came in and started to build all these hotels up and down the Strip, which served as gambling money, but also laundry machines for all the drug money that Mayor Lansky and Lucky Luciano were running, you know, from France and from Mexico all through the U.S. And then these Jewish men started to build civic institutions in addition to nightclubs and casinos, and so they built temples and they built malls and they built hospitals and they built neighborhoods and suburban neighborhoods and condos and office buildings, and they contributed to UNLV. I think Modelitz bought all the furniture for the library at the university there. They actually became powerful uh, empire builders, and that was not something I understood before I started my research. Yeah, it was very interesting for me to yeah sort of read about this evolution. And you also, um, you know, the Jewish neighborhood figures into the novel, um, as well as aspects of Jewish, you know, observance and tradition. And um, 
I'd love to know what you learned about that neighborhood, that community, and sort of uh, they had to straddle both in this in this story. Well, the Boyle Heights neighborhood of L.A. was a great, thriving Jewish district uh, pre-war and uh, had a beautiful synagogue that they referred to as the Queen of Shuls, which has now got some scaffolding and in a state of uh, kind of crumbling apart because the neighborhood has changed so much. Uh, A freeway was built right through it. So... That neighborhood reminded me of the Jewish Baltimore that my mother had grown up in and the very observant grandfather that she had grown up with, and that's the grandfather I gave to Esme. And those Jews represented the part of the Jewish population that was going to come and um, run businesses and have their children go to school and get those degrees and move out of the Jewish ghetto areas of L.A. and into neighborhoods that were not restricted or became unrestricted uh, through law as time went on. Like my own grandparents, they were going to sacrifice for the next generation, like so many immigrants do. And then there are always the men of that same age who do not want to have a shop and aren't going to wait, can't get an education, and don't have the patience to just sort of sit out their lives and and allow their children to flourish. And these were the men who built the rackets in L.A. and Detroit and Cleveland, Miami, New York, and these are the men that went out to Vegas. And I, they had some vestiges of their Jewishness that they brought with them to Vegas. They, they set up their synagogues. They were not really religious men. They were more secular Jews. And I found it somewhat hilarious that Jack Entratter, who was uh, the choreographer and entertainment director at the hotels with the showgirls, was uh, president of the local synagogue. I said I wouldn't do a spoiler alert, so let me know if it's okay if we go there with this one question, mm-hmm. um, which kind of picks up on the, the Jewish aspect of the book, um, or at least some of its roots. There's a really powerful chapter in which Esme sort of secrets herself away in the floor of her father's car, trying to figure out where he's going. And they end up in the middle or she ends up in the middle of this rally for Hitler. I wonder, again, if you could just talk about how that figures into the story and if it's some kind of a metaphor and um, what its place is in there. It's, as I say, it's a really powerful chapter. Uh, that, for me, was one of the most fun scenes to write. Um, and, of course, that was a real Deutsche House, and uh, there were a number of German Bund rallies uh, before the U.S. entered the war and we became, you know, a nation of uh, German haters. And um, these were rallies that Mickey Cohen would uh, gather his minions and go and break up uh, with guns, but mostly with metal pipes. And uh, he was uh, a fighter, a boxer. His name was the Jew Boy. And he would use his fist to fight against anti-Semitism that he found around him. And he found these blend meetings so offensive and these rallies so appalling that he would use the tools that he knew how to use to fight them. I put Esme in her dad's car to see that because... 
she'd grown up in a world of all Jewish people in Boyle Heights and on the MGM lot, and she hadn't been exposed yet to some of the really scurrilous kinds of publications and um, speeches that were made against Jews. And so for her, um, it's a, a shock, um, a, a terrible awakening. And she moves, as she always moves, kind of invisibly uh, through these worlds, whether she's hiding at the racetrack or the soundstage with her mom. And here she is hiding in plain sight at this uh, Nazi rally, sort of uh, seeing some of the fascist fervor that was going to spill over into the world and then seeing her dad as being part of this group that's going to fight against it. So... While she's up on the stage, uh, masquerading as a young Gentile girl with the approval of Herr Schwinn and everyone else around him, she sees Mickey Cohen, whom she knows, and her dad kind of marshalling almost like a wave of uh, breaking up this Bund rally and making these Nazi sympathizers it's exhilarating to her to see this kind of power enacted against evil. It's not something she sees much more of, but it makes her admire her dad and these men. Yeah, it was great to see him in that situation, unexpected. And it, it's apparent now that you did have a good time writing that chapter because it just... It got me. Um, it's 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 fun and it's informative and it's a little snapshot at the same time. So, in writing this, did the story take you where you had expected to go? I originally did not plan to go to Vegas with the story. I thought the um, family would expand and move up to the valley where Esme's mother would find herself so discontented that the father agreed the family should move to Vegas and the book was going to end with all of them driving there for the mom to try to make her way onto the stage as the dancer or burlesque artist that Esme becomes. But the book just took a different turn, as things do, and I became... I had so much fun with the Vegas material and with the Vegas that was burgeoning... Um, that I just decided to move Esme there. And as a young woman growing up, there was so much to exploit about her, both her drive and her predation and her observations of these men from a child's point of view. You do paint. I'm a very visual person, and I really felt I was immersed, and I could feel those rooms and the costumes, even the weight of them, the way you described them. Uh, was just great. So what are you working on now? If I may I'm ask. working now on a book set in uh, the mid-70s uh, about um, my murdered ex-boyfriend and his very charismatic uh, family. Um, the um, father comes out to Los Angeles to try to be a stand-up comic and bombs on the gong show the mom who finds that she's ill goes up to Esalen, up at Big Sur, mm -hmm. to try to heal herself there. And the grandmother, who's the matriarch of this uh, Vicksburg family, is trying to uh, hold together the divorce 
couple and her troubled grandson. Um, and the book, unfortunately, ends with someone dying that you didn't expect to die, which would be the grandson. Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for writing the book. Uh, and was, uh, I would recommend it to everybody. Um, it's The Magnificent Esme Wells, Harper Collins, and it will be available April 2018. Yes? Yes. Excellent. Well, keep writing, uh, keep telling us stories, and thanks again for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it so okay. much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Michael Yashinsky, Education Specialist at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 16, Lisa Newman's 2012 conversation with Aaron Lansky and graphic designer Alex Isley, who created the Yiddish Book Center's logo, the adorable, smiling goat, Ziggy. Until next time, be well, be healthy, Zeitgesinnt! <laughs>